you can pray. So let's pray and let's bow our heads together. Lord God, we call out to you the only way that we can, which is through faith in Christ. And in many ways, it says it all, the, one of the last phrases of that hymn that we were sing, singing, that the conqueror has risen. And we thank you for this word, overcome or overcomer. We thank you for this word, conquer. But Lord, there is one, and again, we are reminded there is one, capital C, the conqueror. And even though this morning you speak to us through your word and you tell us as believers that we must conquer, we have no hope unless the capital C conqueror has risen and before his resurrection has conquered death and the grave through his work on the cross for sinners. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning not to come as those who in any way feel that we are righteous in and of ourselves apart from you, but help us to look for our righteousness in Christ. Help us to own, to own the fact that we are sinners. Even now, Lord, our great God, we confess that in all of its simplicity and in all of its truth, we confess that apart from you, there is no good in us. Even as your people who are called saints, we do not pretend that we go a day without sinning. Not at all. So we say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy. Through the cross work, through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the blood shed by our Savior, We thank you that he is risen, that he is alive, that he has, as the scripture says, he has poured out that which you now see and hear as we read in the book of Acts. We thank you that he has given us of his Holy Spirit. Lord, work among us this morning, certainly beyond anything that I could accomplish or that we could. 
We pray for your help even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, In just a moment, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Revelation again if you're not there. We are going to observe the Lord's Supper today after the sermon. John Newton wrote these words as a poem. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree. Listen to these words. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. I wanted to share that with you even before we begin this time of the sermon this morning. Let me invite you and we will keep in mind that we'll be doing this even as we preach and hear. Let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Revelation chapters 2 through 3. And before we would soon leave this book of Revelation, before we soon leave it, it would be good to look at the most famous passage in the whole book. The passage, specifically chapters 2 and 3, that is uh, most well-known, most familiar in the whole book. And so this will be the last time I say this, what what we've done. Just to remind you for what it's worth is uh, last fall, it's been a long time ago, we we did a study on the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, just those first six chapters. And then this new year, we said, we're going to go ahead and do the rest of the book of Daniel 7 through 12. And Daniel 7 through 12, we did that. It goes uh, very well with the book of Revelation. And so while our purpose has never been to go uh, chapter by chapter, we've been looking at certain parts of the book of Revelation because it's such a, a close first cousin of the book of Daniel and particularly the second half of the book of Daniel. Would you stand if you're physically able in honor of the reading of the word of God? This morning, and again, our text is Revelation chapters 2 through 3. Again, if you're not able, that's okay, but all who can in honor of the Word of God, let's briefly pray again. Lord, our Bibles are open, or at the very least, if, if they're not, we're listening. Would you help us to listen? And would you open your word to us? Our Bibles can be open and we can be, uh, we can be stone-hearted and not hear and not receive. May that not be the case. Uh, may we rejoice in you through Jesus Christ. Help us 
Help me, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. I'm not going to read all of this uh, revelation chapters two through three, but let's begin at verse one. Verse one of revelation chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, says the Lord Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So we want to come back to Ephesus, verses 1 through 7, but for now, let's read the end of our sermon text, which begins in verse 14 of chapter 3. We've read the beginning. Let's read the end. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, although he is not created. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, did you get that? Verse 19 of chapter 3. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we've read the beginning of our passage, we've read the end, and we're getting a sample, and we want to read the middle before we press on into the sermon proper. Chapter 2, verse 18. The beginning, the end, and the middle, all of this as really merely a sampler Chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, 
who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel in chapter 2, verse 20, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I want to keep reading, but you can be seated for now. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Lord is merciful and kind. Today, he holds out this word, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. If you have the ESV, say it out loud with me. Verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We've read the sample, the end of the section. It, is, it does go together. Uh, These two chapters, even though there is, of course, a chapter break, uh, it goes together. And we've read the middle, which is Thyatira, because there's four churches in chapter 2 and 3 in chapter 3, and we've read a part of the beginning, which is Ephesus. The title this morning of the sermon is this. The title is Seven Letters for Seven Churches. Seven Letters for Seven Churches. Uh, there's a movie, it's, it's very old, I don't know, maybe it's 70 years old, maybe you've seen it, it's called uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and uh, my wife's family enjoys some of those really old movies, and so I've been introduced to some of those, not to mention being forced to watch White Christmas every Christmas and things like this while listening to the dub over of the words while the movie's going on, but anyway, this is not uh, Seven Brides for seven brothers. This is seven letters for seven churches. Seven letters for seven churches. Listen to what uh, Jim Hamilton says and think about this. Really, uh, don't answer out loud, but think about how you would answer this. If Jesus were to write a letter to your local church, and obviously I want to say like Crossway, let you think about this, my fellow members. If Jesus were to write a letter to your local church, what do you think he would say? 
Think of it. The risen Christ himself dictating a message addressing the strengths and weaknesses of your local church. Prefaced by a description of some aspect of his own glory, containing important information for the immediate future of the church, and concluded by a promised reward offered to those who heed his word. Wouldn't we want to hear what he has to say to us? And again, of course, without answering out loud, I ask all of you, we're so glad you're here if you're visiting, and maybe I ask you especially who are uh, locked, locked arms in arms with, with me and with my family, we're so glad to call you our church family. I say again in the words of Hamilton, if Jesus were to write a letter to Crossway, what do you think he would say? Well, that's interesting, and that's good to think about. There's nothing wrong in thinking about that possibility, that hypothetical. But I will tell you something this morning. Shame on us if we ever look for some kind of direct word from the Lord while all the while ignoring the word that he has given to us. Let me say that again. Shame on us. And let me gently and tenderly say shame on you. If you spend your life or even part of your life looking for some type of maybe mystical direct word from the Lord when he has given us his sure and perfect word. So what I'm trying to say is, what I'm trying to say is, I believe on the authority of the word of God that these seven letters to these seven churches have been preserved for us today. So that even while we think about, wow, wouldn't that be nice? Or wouldn't that be interesting? Or wouldn't that be maybe hard to hear what the Lord Jesus Christ would have to say in a letter to Crossway Church of Goldsboro? What's really even better? What's actually even better? And maybe even a more sure word is what we have here. You know, it says over and over again. Look at the text with me. Look at the text. And specifically at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't want to make too much of this, but it did not say there, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. These are, to be sure, these are seven letters written to seven specific specific historical churches back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a historical context. These were real churches with real problems, most of them, And they were given a specific word. But I want you to see this again. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My desire for you today and for us, don't stop up your ears. Don't in any way intentionally clog your ears. But even pray, even now, pray that God would help you to hear the word of Christ. To see the gospel of Christ. You know, it says it over and over. It's not only in verse 7, but to all seven churches, it says what? He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. And just before I read that, let me say it's as though there is a blessing. It's as though there is a blessing pronounced upon the one who hears what the Spirit says to the churches. And it says that explicitly in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. And who keep what is written in it. Did you see that? For the time is near. If you work backwards with verse 3, here's what you say. You say, my friends, the time is near. The time is near, my friend. The time is near. So keep what you see and what you hear. This message this morning to the churches and to us is not first and foremost about what we must do, but it begins with what we see and what we hear. And we receive the gospel by faith. You cannot be made right with God by what you do. You can be made right with God through, uh, through works, only through the work of Christ, not by your works. You can be made right with God through the work of Christ and never by your works. This morning, these messages to Crossway Church, because I think the Bible itself not only have scholars or church history said for 2,000 years, I say the Bible itself teaches us that this was not just for those seven churches. I submit to you it's for, listen, all churches at all times. If you think about that, that's really cool. If you really think about that, I, I personally think that's awesome. That I think even the scripture itself points us in this direction, that the message given to these historical churches, this message is one message for all churches of all times. The Lord Jesus has never abdicated his throne. He is risen. He is the conquering king with a capital C. Listen to me. If I could summarize it and say it simply this morning, here it is. We must conquer. And the way we conquer is through the capital C conqueror and through his blood and through properly understood through the word of our testimony and through persevering with God's people, the church. Let me make it even more simple than that. Friends, we must conquer. My fellow believer, listen to me. Perseverance is not an option. We must conquer and we cannot do that on our own. We have the church, and supremely we have him who has conquered death and the grave. The church of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ is so often weak. Listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ is so often weak and imperfect and sometimes in sin that puts her in grave danger. The only thing that's perfect about the church of Jesus Christ is, is her, her Savior. He is the Lord in perfect righteousness. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is weak. 
is imperfect, is sinful, and is loved. The church, please, this morning, please, we're so conditioned to think in an individualistic way. And that's fine. Christianity is about individual. You this morning need to repent and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. As an individual, nobody can do that for you. But the church, the church of Jesus Christ is loved. And he speaks words of comfort, even these words that enable us to persevere. Just two things. Two things. The first one is there in verse 7, but we need to begin in verse 1. Just two things here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Look at it, what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that's his that's the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, uh, Revelation 2.4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you're reading this and in any way thinking those are sober words, he's not joking, well, then you're exactly right. There's no joking here. These are sober words. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place Unless you repent, yet this you have. Verse 6, you hate the works of the, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I said to you that there's two things this morning, and the first one is this. It's the word conquers. It's the word conquers. See what it says there. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Did you see that? Conquers. Or to expand it to the one who conquers. Let me ask you a question. Is this really important? Is this really important specifically when it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God? Is this really important? Maybe he just says this to Ephesus. Ephesus is the first church mentioned among the seven. Maybe he just says this to them. Look at the second half of verse 11. Second half of verse 11. This is the second church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Who will not be hurt by the second death? The one who conquers. Please pay close attention to the word. Now we're on the third church, middle of verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Sometimes we can say, well, what does all this mean? And sometimes it means something uh, in a way more simple fashion than we even realize. He's talking about inheriting eternal life. Okay? Okay. 
Is this important when he says to the one who conquers back in verse 2-7? Two, uh, Maybe he just said that to Ephesus. No, we've already seen he didn't just say that to Ephesus. How about Thyatira, which is the last church, the fourth church in chapter 2, verse 26. What does it say? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Let me look you square in the eye, my fellow believer. If you're here this morning, a professing Christian, there, there must be, by the grace of God, yes, there must be perseverance and obedience if there is to be final salvation. Listen carefully to what I said. There must be obedience and perseverance in faith. Perseverance in faith and obedience if there is going to be final salvation. So we've said it before. I want to be crystal clear. We are not made right with God through obedience or through perseverance in faith. Those who are made right with God by his sheer grace and by faith and repentance those who are truly Christians continue on the path. We fall and we stumble. And dear friend, I don't have to tell you starting right up here, this church is certainly not perfect. We fall and we stumble sometimes in a way that befuddles us. What am I doing? Oh, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nevertheless, the truth of this passage and of scripture again is this. Perseverance in faith and obedience are required for final salvation. And let me be quick to say it is all of grace. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels. And notice also that every time it says conquers, it's right there next to that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know the way that you keep going as a Christian? My fellow Crossway member, you know the way that you stay on the path? This is like from Galatians. This is from the whole Bible. It's actually the same way you started. It's by hearing and receiving with faith and growing in the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. That's why that every time this first heading, what's this first heading? Conquers to the one who conquers. Every time it's coupled, do you see? It's coupled with he who has an ear, let him hear. You don't keep going all the way to heaven by trying harder. You do the same way that you started, Colossians 1.6 and Colossians 2.6. It's by grace through faith, this is, this is your greatest weapon. This is your greatest weapon, even if you can't physically hear, is to hear the Word of God, to receive the Word of God, to hear the Gospel, to see Jesus Christ. Well, just to round it out, I want you to feel the cumulative force of this. Just to round it out, church number six, church number six, chapter three, verse 12. What does it say? 
Well, it says the same thing. It says it in a slightly different way, but it at least begins the same way. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Again, it's like, okay, is this weird revelation talk? No, it's, it's inheriting eternal life. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. Here's the deal. I'm trying to just come back to this simple idea. We must conquer And what he's doing, I I think the main thing he's doing in these two chapters is he's making promises to conquerors. He promises, he makes promises to the victors. Who makes promises? The risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, or we should know, listen, that the greatest promise that he can give us is to give us himself. He doesn't promise us things, although he does, in as much as he promises us himself. Why do I say that? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Finally, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And here's the key. Here's the key. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The message to the churches is that we must conquer, but the message is not first and foremost, do this and live. That's the law. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, it is done. So believe and receive. Christ is the conqueror with a capital C, so we must rest in him. He's the conqueror with a capital C, so we must rest in him. Please notice again what it says. Is it an accident? Is it an accident that it says this at the very end? As though to make the point, Jesus says, As I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. You know something about this? Uh, These churches, there's seven of them. There's seven of these, and overall the picture is not good. And the church has really just kind of gotten started, right? We haven't had... 2,000 years to kind of make a little bit of a mess of things. But this is in the early days of the church. And by the way, I think this is neat. Church number one uh, is in bad shape. And then church number seven, also, also in really bad shape. Churches number two and six are in good shape by the grace of God. And then the middle three churches are not in good shape. I'll say that again. Churches number one and seven are in really bad shape. The middle three churches are in pretty bad shape. And churches two and six are the only ones that are doing pretty good. Which is to say, it's it's actually a weird encouragement, isn't it? It's a weird backdoor type of encouragement that the church of Jesus Christ, as I said before, is often, often weak, certainly imperfect, and sometimes not only sinful, but in, in such grave sin that she is in danger. And so our only hope is 21, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. Look away from yourself. You do not have the resources in yourself. You do not have the resources in and of yourself to conquer. 
You definitely can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You also can't conquer, my, my be- beloved brother and sister. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Revelation 12, 11, and they have conquered, there it is again, they have conquered him who? The accuser, Satan, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do you conquer by the blood of the lamb? Look to Christ as the, as the modern hymn says, look to Christ who condescended, who came down. And can I also say this isn't explicitly given in Revelation 2 through 3? But if you just look at what is it, what is it implicitly saying? It's holding before us the beauty and the importance of the local church. The beauty and the importance of the local church. Jesus is not a distant Savior. He's near. He's walking among the lampstands. What are the lampstands? They're the churches. What does it mean that Jesus is walking among them? I love how it's been said before. You know, we live in a society, and we talk about this in our class, a membership class, not to try to browbeat anybody, but it's because, unfortunately, it's true of all of us. We live in a society of low commitment, period. But when it's, when it's believers, people who are born-again believers, or there's... There's there's no commitment to the local church, which means there's no vision of the beauty and the importance of the local church. And why do we harp on the local church? Because our focus is Jesus Christ. Our focus is Jesus. And if your focus is Jesus, then you will not only not despise his people, you will love his people. You can't conquer apart from Jesus, who is the conqueror. And you also can't conquer alone. You can't conquer alone. This letters are written not to individuals, but to churches. As, as it's been said, we, we as Western individualists, we, we date everything and we date the church. And again, my intention is, is certainly not to browbeat, but it's to say that we all look in the mirror that Jesus says here, he says words of tough discipline sometimes. He says, repent or else I will come and wipe out your lampstand. Oh, my dear friend, don't date the church. If you're a true believer, love the church, commit yourself to the church. He says to the one who conquers, and in quicker fashion, let me give you the second. And that is to say, as much as I've just said that Jesus loves his people and that the cross is about the church, Christianity is also about the individual If you're a Christian here this morning, the Lord knows you. He saved you. Listen, Christian, Christ died for you, regardless of your past, current, and future. Dang, you didn't think all about that, right? He died for you in light of your future yet-to-be sins, your present sins, your past sins. I want to encourage you before we move to the table, listen to me, listen to me that the Lord knows you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, then the Lord knows you too. John chapter two says this, the Lord Jesus knows what is in man. You think you know yourself, but we don't. The Lord knows you. Jesus knew, John chapter two says, Jesus knew what was in man. He did not need anybody to tell him, well, this guy, if you... Jesus, let me tell you about this guy, because I've been knowing him for years, and he's, you know, Jesus, no, 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 no. Jesus knows what is in man. He knows. And that's sweet 
On one hand, that's sweet and tender news. Do you hear me? That's good news because if you're a believer, it's not because of you. It's because He saved you by His sheer grace and mercy through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's also a double-edged sword. And there's so much we could point out here. Let me point this out to you. We're just getting the big picture. Chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2, excuse me. I know your works. He says that so often in this two chapters. 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I have tested those, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up. Let me just tell you this. In the original, it's just one word. It's just one word. It's, it's very subtle. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Is this important? Is this important? Yeah, it is. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I love you. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You re- I read that, and at first I think, oh, that's bad. This church is no good. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even what he's saying is you dwell in a very hard place. But I know, I know the Lord Jesus Christ knows his churches. And I'm just saying what this is saying even to us today, even to us today, is that the Lord Jesus Christ knows Crossway. And if God would help us to to think in an individual way, but also in a corporate way, that we not only think about our lives as, as individuals, but we think about the church for which Jesus bled and died, the church that He loves, and we think the fact that Jesus knows Crossway. Well, then the next church begins in verse 18, and we're not surprised in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And chapter 3, verse 1, in the middle of verse 1, I know your works, I know. And chapter 8 of chapter, or verse 8 of chapter 3, I know your works. This is Philadelphia. This is one of the positive churches. They're not perfect, but he doesn't have anything really negative to say against them, except to keep on, hold on. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your works. You see, it's a double-edged sword, don't you? You see, I know. You think you're poor, but you're rich. I know. You think you're rich, but you're poor. Do you see? What would he say to us? It's fine to think about that, but a better answer is to say, what has he said? And in light of what he has said, as the hymn says, what more could he say than to thee he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What? does he say to us? He says primarily this. Not only does he say, secondly, as we've seen, I know. I am the risen Lord. I am not a distant Lord. I walk among you. I know. And even when I give you hard words of discipline, if I give you hard words of discipline, it's because I love you and I don't want you to die. But what he primarily says is, I promise you, to the one who overcomes You will go back to Genesis 1 through 3 and you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God and creation will be regained. And not only will creation be regained, it will be all 
the greater and all the better. He is the one who conquers. He is the conqueror with a capital C. If you're a Christian this morning, then let me remind us that we must conquer. But the only way that we conquer is through him who already has. Thank you.